Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with Midi Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause, and MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. What else is going on? Time for What's Happening. It feels like every day now we have more news about artificial intelligence taking over everything. Many experts warning that technological advancements could put hundreds of thousands of Americans out of work. Top 10 careers at high risk of being replaced by AI. Ready for it? Number 10, executive assistant. Number nine, claims assessor. Number eight, compliance officer. Seven, paralegal. Six, HR assistant. HR assistant? Yeah, I guess it would just be paperwork. I I don't know. Uh, Number five, billing clerk. Four, IT support tech. Three, bookkeeper. To customer service representatives, that will be maddening. And number one, <laughs> cashier. Well, the customer service representative thing is is current. I mean, there's yeah. so many times when you call for help and uh, the computer doesn't quite understand you. Oh, Could yeah. You please repeat that mm-hmm. or just push in the number. Yeah. I just push zero, 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 zero until I get a person <laughs> in India where the connection is bad. Hey, uh, I checked this out. So if you've paid multiple gas bills over the last couple of months and had to take out a second mortgage to do so, the good news is SoCal Gas is hoping to raise rates next year. Great. Yay. They occur every four years, these uh, these proceedings. The Public Utilities Commission takes a broad, in-depth look at utility costs of operating and maintaining their system, the allocation of those costs among consumers. The thing is... When we got punched in the face in, was it second week, first, second week of January with all of the incredibly high uh, hundreds of dollars worth of gas bills, and then we thought they were going to go down, and then you got your February bill, and you thought, wait a minute, I thought you said this was going to go down. And then if you can go to the SoCal Gas website, by the way, they'll estimate what your next bill is going to be. It is also a quick jab to the jaw. It is not very good. San Bernardino County declared a state of emergency after people up there in the mountains were left stranded and snowed in because of this week's winter storm. The hundreds of roads that are still shut down. Most businesses have been closed. Gas stations are starting to run out of fuel. So it's going to be a couple of days. Uh, 
today they're expecting to see some more rain roll in, rain and snow up in the mountains. Um, but by Friday, things should be relatively back to normal. Teacher at Beckman High in Irvine has been arrested after he allegedly placed a hidden recording device in a bathroom at the school. And here is the odd thing about this story. I mean, that's odd on its face, right? But uh, he was placing recorded device, recording devices in all gender restrooms near the school's pool. High schools have all gender restrooms? Wow. Uh, maybe it's just a one-holer. Maybe it's a one-holer. And they're just, they just say it's a restroom? Yeah. It's not like a thing. But you don't have to yeah. call it an all-gender restroom. Right. I don't call my bathrooms at my house all-gender restrooms, but That's they are. a very good point. Aren't they? Yeah. I, mean, I don't know who's been it's in a there. a really good point. But it, but it is. I've been in there. Well, that I don't know which gender you describe yourself as, but I would assume it's probably one of... I think I'm going to take your picture and post it on our story because my arm is tired we have a broken microphone. Here. Well, they, they find the absolute worst, not they. They won't say they. The construction of this is very cheap. There's one weak spot and it's a big, it's a plastic nut, I guess. Best way to put it, if there is such a thing. Uh, Alec Baldwin and the other producers of Rust have now been sued by crew members over the shooting on the set. The lawsuit alleges negligence and intentional infliction of emotional distress. Money. Ross Adegio, uh, Doran Curtin, and Reese Price are three crew members who claim that they were there. The defendants in this lawsuit, they said, cut corners, ignored reports of multiple unscripted firearms discharges, and persisted, rushed, and understaffed to finish the film. So, I mentioned the Tom Sizemore story. Courtney Cox actually got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Did you know that? I did not know that. I actually that. thought she already had. Yeah, me too. I thought all of the friends would have been uh, represented on the, the Walk of Fame by At now. At some point, yeah. Well, one of the big stories that we have followed over the course of these last several weeks is the murder trial of Alex Murdoch in uh, South Carolina. This longtime, well-known attorney, uh, very mm, troublesome family, I think is probably the best way to put it. Uh, his defense has rested. We're waiting for some closing arguments, etc. Derek Dennis is joining us live now from... New York to cover this story for us and for ABC News. And Derek, this has been a pretty wild case in terms of dominating the headlines there in South Carolina. Oh, absolutely. As you mentioned, a, a prominent attorney who has now been disbarred, uh, accused of killing his wife uh, and one of his sons uh, named Paul back in June of 2021. He's on trial now. Uh, he's pleaded not guilty, uh, but there's been a, a, a line of uh, witnesses testifying uh, on, on both sides. Right now we're in the rebuttal phase. This is where the prosecution puts up witnesses to rebut uh, the defense witnesses that were on the stand uh, yesterday and, and and, you know, the, the days leading up to today, including Alec Murdoch himself, who testified in his own defense that he didn't kill his wife and son, uh, and, and his defense lawyers raising uh, the, the claim that there might have been uh, two killers somehow uh, to commit these murders. Uh, and so in this rebuttal phase, there was a, a, a pretty fiery exchange just this morning between uh, a friend, a uh, longtime friend of Alec Murdoch, uh, and former law firm partner uh, who, who, you know, doubled down on his claim that he wasn't currently mad at Alex Murdoch, uh, but he was mad at 
him stealing millions, admittedly stealing millions from the law firm that they shared. And so uh, that's just been a sampling of the testimony we've heard, the, the case is ongoing, uh, and we're waiting for the jury to go on a field trip to the scene of the murders, a rural family property in South Carolina. That should happen sometime this afternoon. Talk about a sampling. What jurors are hearing in that courtroom is just a sampling of the trouble this family has been in for years. Right. I mean, there's, uh, you know, allegations and proven allegations that Alex Murdoch stole from his law firm, uh, that there was a, a murder that his son was involved in and, and got a lot of public uh, backlash over it. Uh, and uh, it, just the, the even Alex Murdoch said on the stand uh, that he lied repeatedly and, and said something to the effect of what a tangled web we weave. And so, the, you know, that was just some of his testimony from last week that dominated the headlines. I mean, as you said, we're waiting for closing arguments to come. That should happen uh, after the jury goes on this field trip to the family property where the murders were carried out. Uh, and uh, look, there's been tense moments on both sides, and a lot of legal analysts say uh, that the outcome really could be a toss-up here. Yeah, is there any way to gauge the the I mean, both sides are going to be confident about their cases. Prosecutors right. obviously bring the case, so they're confident that they can get a conviction. But the defense attorneys are suggesting all of these different theories. There is a way to gauge which side is more confident than the other. No, I mean, you know, what we have is analysts saying that the case is largely circumstantial against Alex Murdoch and, and you know, that uh, prosecutors have raised a lot of his prior crimes, his admitted lying, the the financial wrongdoing uh, that led to millions being stolen from his law firm, but no real uh, smoking gun here uh, pointing Alex Murdoch as the murderer of his wife and son, Paul. And so... Uh, it's really going to come down to what the jury believes here. Did he kill his wife and son or did someone else do it? It'll be interesting. And I know it's interesting there in, in that county where this family has been entrenched in legal circles, yeah. both in on the civil side and on the criminal side for generations. And it, by all accounts, and it's highlighted in the Netflix documentary, this family's been able to get away with murder, uh, and they have their tentacles spread out throughout the law enforcement community, in the private community, and a lot of people have looked the other way for quite some time when it comes to this family's, uh, let's just say, arrogance and affluenza, it could be described right. as, I think. So I think uh, it'll be very interesting to see what this jury comes up with. Yeah, we saw a little bit of that in Alex Murdoch's testimony in his own defense. He seemed very confident, very sure, so confident that he admitted on the stand, you know, I'm a liar. I've lied about a lot of things, uh, and but, you know, doubled down in his claim that he did not commit these murders. Derek, we appreciate it. Thanks. Sure. Derek Dennis there, live from uh, New York with ABC uh, on this case. Now, you mentioned the closing arguments tomorrow. Are they... I think they're expected to take a day and a half, if I read that correctly. So, I mean, after your instructions, by the end of this week, we expect the jury to at least begin deliberations on this. So, well, the celebration of a lifetime is waiting. KFI AM 640 wants to send you to celebrate 100 years of Disney at the Disneyland Resort. Keep listening to KFI AM 640 for details on your chance to win a four-pack of one-day, one-park tickets to Disneyland or Disney California Adventure Park. There's also an extra chance to win on the KFI Instagram page. Both ticket and park reservations are required. Visit Disneyland.com for important details. 
True Crime Tuesday kicks off with the story of the murder of Kathy Krausneck, murdered in 1982 in Brighton, New York. It was called the Brighton Axe Murder because Kathy was found in bed facing the opposite wall with an axe in her head. Sorry, that didn't start out uplifting. Well, you just get right to the point, though. I think that's important. Let me uh, start it off with a little bit of a better story. James and Kathy Krausneck seemed like an all-American couple. James, square-jawed, fit, handsome, Kathy, flowing hair, winning smile, attractive. He was more reserved. She was more outgoing. Then then she was found in bed with the axe, yeah. Um, this was back in in 1982, and one of the uh, investigators in that case, uh, currently a, a state Supreme Court justice, apparently, one of the investigators says that he went upstairs into the bedroom and, and sees her there uh, in the condition that she was in. And years would pass before someone would even be accused of the murder of Kathy. 1982... Rolls on, 92 rolls on, 2002 rolls on, 2012. But in 2019, a grand jury finally indicts her husband, James, on second-degree murder charges. Now, James had been married three times since Kathy's death. He and his current wife together since 1999. His previous spouses did not give investigators any sort of evidence that would hint that he was capable of this. But nevertheless, in late September 2022... A jury convicted James of killing his wife back in 82. So one of the uh, unfortunate aspects of this case is that their three-and-a-half-year-old daughter was home at the time. And the three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, was uh, Sarah, spent the day basically with her mom's dead body in the house. She had dressed herself in unmatched sweaters the investigator recalled seeing her with shoes on the wrong feet because obviously she was doing it herself. And when she did talk to police, she was confused by what had gone on in the house, whatever it was, and was confused by what she saw. She fact, in fact said that there was a bad man in the bed with an axe in the head. She didn't even recognize the body as her mother. When Sarah was in the police station uh, a few hours later, this investigator took Sarah to the library. They gathered, gathered some playthings from the kids section. He said, I wanted to, uh, went in, got some stuffed animals and brought them to her. Uh, the word was beginning to reach the, uh, the TV media in the area, newspapers as well, about a homicide in Brighton. But at that point, they really didn't know much more than the fact that Kathy was found in bed with an axe in her head. Dennis O'Brien produced a segment in 2005 for the national show, A Current Affair 2. And he says that it just always fascinated him, right? Why? Uh, why did he, why did the, if it was the husband, why did he do it? Um, who, if it wasn't him? He says there was no smoking gun with the crime, no confession from the husband, no eyewitness testimony, no moments of explosive temper throughout the husband's life. No indication that he plotted to do anything remotely criminal. So Dennis O'Brien, who worked for The Current Affairs, I mentioned in 2005, on the night of the murder, he was a reporter at what now is WHAM-TV. And it stayed with him 20 years later to where he produced this segment. Over the years, he kept some contact with Kathy's family, particularly her sister Annette. 
It brought some renewed interest in 2005, but no more leads of consequence. It was an old story with no ending to it. So they get a new police chief, a guy named Mark Henderson, and he was sent the video of the news story itself by that reporter. And the timing of it was absolutely perfect because the FBI was just stepping in. They were going to do a cold case collaboration with local police to try to tackle some of these long unsolved crimes that they had. And that that current affair two segment was perfect, according to the police chief. It's uh, it synopsized. <laughs> it was a perfect synopsis. Of the case itself. The police chief, by the way, was no stranger to this crime. His predecessor, Thomas Vogel, had talked about it repeatedly. Apparently, Thomas couldn't get it out of his mind as well. The former chief, Eugene Shaw, who headed the department in 82, kept parts of the police file on his desk. You'll hear that from detectives mm -hmm. from time to time, that they keep files that are cold or had import to them on their desks to the, remind them why they do what they do. Some nights after reviewing the files or receiving an occasional tip that Chief Eugene Shaw would make cassette recordings at home about the unsolved murder. It was just fascinating to every law enforcement official who came in contact with this. So this new chief, uh, Mark Henderson, re-examines the case along with the investigators that are currently working for Brighton Police. And he enlists the help of the DA at the time, Sandra Dooley, who also tasked some investigators to check in on this case as well. And they all pitch it to the FBI to try to get the resources of the Federal Bureau of Investigation behind them as they reopen this cold case. And they said it was successful. They all made a trip to Michigan to tell Kathy's family that police and other law enforcement agencies were going to take a new look at this thing. They're going to do a complete reexamination forensically of the evidence. They were going to digitize thousands of pages of investigative records and then do basically a... a, a front to back, beginning to end, restructuring of the crime itself, and another look at the time of death. So the police chief and investigator fly into the small airport in Traverse City, Michigan, to visit Kathy's father, now in his 90s, lives in a 900-square-foot home on 118 acres in rural Michigan. It was once a hunting camp there that he himself built, the dad did. Now, when the investigator and the police chief fly in, they didn't know that there was a major golf tournament nearby. They turn up at this little <laughs> airport. They realized they hadn't reserved a rental car. They thought they could just pick one up and they were all sold out. Well, it doesn't it doesn't hurt to have uh, an FBI badge when sure. you're trying to get a rental car. Uh, in this case, they actually found a minivan that's usually typically used for transit service that uh, that they were able to rent and go visit Robert Schlosser, again, Kathy's dad. They knock on the door. Dad welcomes them in. They brief him on what they plan to do with the case. And afterwards, as the chief and the investigator are getting ready to live, dad says, let's have a beer. At well, first, the chief is like, no, I got a two-hour drive back to where I'm headed. But the daughter, Annette, says, you know, this would really mean a lot to my dad. I get that too. I mean, yeah. if your fa if the, this father for twenty, thirty years has been, you know, reliving the uh, mystery of who killed his daughter in such a gruesome way, the idea that now they have new eyes, new energy into solving it, it makes perfect sense that he would want him to stick around. 
We have been uh, telling you True Crime Tuesday. This uh, case this week is the death of Kathy Krauseneck from back in February of 1982. Kathy Krauseneck at the time was a young wife and mother. She was 29 years old, lived in Brighton, a suburb of Rochester, New York, with her husband, James Krauseneck. She and James shared a daughter together, Sarah, who's now, uh, after all these years, in her mid-40s. She was only three when Kathy was killed with an axe to the head while in bed back in 1982. It was February 19th, 1982, when Kathy was discovered. Little girl also found at the scene of the crime, luckily unharmed. Jim had apparently told police that he shows up from work, comes home from work, and finds Kathy's body. Uh, Sarah was there but was unharmed. Minutes later, he shows up at a neighbor's house. Holding his little girl, a neighbor has to call 911 because Jim apparently can't speak. Um, he said he went to work at the normal time. He'd been gone all day. Kathy was planning on staying home just to take care of their little girl. Now, according to one of the detectives, Sarah was clearly confused about what had happened. And as I mentioned before, she referred to the bad man sleeping in daddy's bed. Well, she didn't recognize her mother because right. of, you know, the axe to her mother's head. Probably that. Uh, probably that. When asked by detectives if the man was black or white, the little girl said he was many colors. Because of probably the blood. Yeah. And she was there for hours. She spent a day in that home with her mother's corpse and had those mismatched clothes on, dressed herself. Mm. Oh. So detectives said at the first investigators at the scene didn't really find any sort of significant forensic clues, fibers, fingerprints, or anything like that. DNA back in 82 would not have been an option for them, but there was something about the scene that apparently hit them. It looked like it was an interrupted burglary. The axe uh, found at the door and the one in Kathy's head both belonged to the Krausen axe. In the dining room, there were some valuable items that had been scattered, like her purse uh, the purse had been turned inside out. And all this stuff was on the floor. There was a tea set on the floor. But the tea set looked like it had simply been set down on the floor. Mm. It wasn't knocked over. It wasn't pushed off a table or anything like that. They said there was a black garbage bag sitting next to it. Inside, there was a faint shoe print as if someone had stepped in it to hold it open. And despite all of these things that, that would have pointed to a burglary... The detective said there was one thing that was missing, and that was that nothing was missing. There was no, nothing had been and taken, even though it looked like a burglary. It's a burglary, right. Now, the husband at the time, remember, there, you always look at the husband, right? You'd think that he would be the suspect right away. He was not, and this thing went cold for 40 years due to a lack of evidence and leads. And then in 2015, when the case was reopened, as we were talking about before the break, led by the FBI and celebrity forensic pathologist, Dr. Michael Bodden. He was the one who apparently found evidence to prove that Kathy's husband, James, was at home at the time of her murder. He was arrested for second degree murder in 2019, found guilty of it at the age of 70, 40 years after it went down. Sarah, by the way, the daughter, the three-year-old who spent the day with her mom's corpse, had remained in support of her father for years. Claiming at his hearing in November that it is absolutely inconceivable for him to have conceived such an act. Now, his attorney allegedly plans to appeal the verdict as he fights to maintain his innocence. Excuse me. He said in court, 
Repeatedly, I did not murder Kathy. I loved Kathy with all my heart and with all my soul. I continue to be haunted by why someone would murder such a beautiful person. And there was nothing in the interviews that they did with people who knew this couple, who knew him, people who knew him after the fact, including the three wives that he married and the one he's been married to for, what, the past 24 years. None of them have flagged anything in his personality that would make him remotely capable of committing a crime, let alone a heinous axe murder. So I mentioned earlier when we were teasing this that this has become sort of uh, the fodder for a lot of different crime shows. We mentioned A Current Affair. Uh, there were other shows that, that did um, segments on this case. It was actually a novel that was then adapted into a Netflix film, magazine articles, true crime books, all of these things that surrounded this case. 48 Hours did an episode on this case, Kathy Krusenek's, uh, Krausenek's murder. And you mentioned Jim Krausenek had been married three times after Kathy's murder. They sat down with at least two of this guy's wives and asked him, uh, sorry, asked them, hey, did you ever, I mean, you know that you're married to a guy whose wife was murdered. Did you ever ask if he did it? And one of the wives, uh, the ex-wives now said, no, no, I didn't ask. And they said, why not? And she said, because I know he didn't do it. Which I guess you're willing to overlook. Women are willing to <laughs> overlook a lot. I mean, how many times have we talked about women who know somebody is a murderer and yet chooses to correspond with them? Right. I don't they think that they're, they're going to be the one they're going to be the one to change him. Um, there was a guy who outside of Jim was considered a suspect in this case. He was a, a, a serial predator, apparently, who had lived in the area. Ed Larrabee. A um, bunch of people described him as a super violent guy, a reputation and a record as a violent sexual predator, but had zero reason to have ever met or contacted Kathy in any way, but he was the only person that they were concentrating on in those early days until they were able to come up with uh, the new forensic evidence of the new evaluation as to when Kathy probably died. I think they eventually put the time of death at closer to 3.30 in the morning. Which is why they think the husband was at home at the time. Yeah. But if they never had any fights or anything, there was never, it's just odd. It's, it's a rare case where I'm not sure the husband did it. Well, he's he's paying the price for doing it. Thanks. Thank you. Well, thank you. <laughs> that's what people say, isn't it? <laughs> well, he's paying the price. Uh, right. Dodger baseball. Listen to every play from spring training in Arizona and HD on the free iHeartRadio app. Keyword AM570 LA Sports. Dodgers taking on the Cincinnati Reds right mm. now. Your home of Dodger baseball is AM570 LA Sports. Yep. John and Ken show coming up next. See you tomorrow. Stay dry, everybody. Pay the price. We really must be going. Gary and Shannon. Thank you for a memorable afternoon. Usually one must go to a bowling alley to meet a woman of your stature. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.